Welcome to School of Movies. We need to talk about fandom. Running mate for the Guillermo del Toro series of podcasts, Lauren Grieve. Hello again. Hollywood actress and Bojack and Babadook show guest, Maya Santandrea. Hello, everyone. And from sequentially yours, two of our regulars, Karen Nagisa. Hey there. And Debbie Morse. Hello. Okay, so I'm going to begin with a sizable introduction to map out the context and aims of this particular show, because it's been a long time coming, and it might be one of our most important. It is not a show designed to make everyone miserable or ashamed. Far from it. This is in response to everyone feeling miserable right now, and a way that we can all do something, no matter how small, to improve things for ourselves and for others. We are all going to try our absolute best to deal in facts rather than opinions, especially to ensure that this doesn't become too heated or depressing. And it's not about pushing people away. It's about preventing arguments you might have in future, which nobody wins. In late 2017, after the response to The Last Jedi, I facetiously pronounced fandom dead because the discourse had become so poisoned, so ludicrous, that it was just too hard to love something anymore. I meant what I said, and this show is about addressing that and finding some kind of comfortable place within fandom again, effectively resurrecting it. So please forgive me if a lot of this we-need-to-talk-about show turns out to be I-need-to-talk-about, because I do, and there's a weight I need to unload. And in doing so, if I don't fuck it up, a lot of people may feel a little bit lighter as well. My aim is also to not have to talk much about these guys again for the rest of the year. Uh, That is until episode 9 comes out when you won't be able to escape them. Back in late 2013, I put together a show with guests Daniel Floyd, Lily Skulderferi and Bob Chipman called Fan Response. It was a protracted discussion about how toxic, controlling elements of fandom had manifested over the years within our lifetimes. The main scenario we started with was the 1993 turn to evil and subsequent death of that beloved Silver Age, Hal Jordan as Green Lantern in comics. He was replaced by Kyle Rayner. A lot of Green Lantern readers didn't like Kyle and or didn't like what was done to Hal, and some of them campaigned to have the decision undone by DC Comics and their hero returned. They formed a group called Hal's Emerald Action Team, or HEAT, and bear in mind that this was the early 90s before most of us were online. They stuck it to DC, and after only nine years, in 2004, when Jeff Johns wrote the new Rebirth storyline, Hal was finally brought back. The thing is, nine years is an indescribably long time in comics. Superman had died, been replaced by a bunch of substitute teachers, and been reborn with a mullet all within the year of 1993. And that action in itself, as professional disgraced asshat Max Landis said, quite rightly, killed death in comics. Because after Superman died and came back, that meant everyone could, and they did. But not Hal. Not yet. There seems to be no correlation between DC bringing Hal back in 2004 and the 1993 heat backlash. 
We talked that over among many other scenarios on that fan response show, and one of the major ones we covered was Mass Effect 3, a situation where a petition of some 13,182 supporters demanded that Bioware change what was perceived by them as an unsatisfactory ending. That sounds like a lot of people, but here's the thing. And I said this back then, that game sold 6 million copies. It is hard to wrap your head around that big a number. To put it in perspective, just a single percentile, 1%, 1 in 100 of the people who bought that game is 60,000. The 13,000 and change who signed that petition were not even a quarter of that 1%. Think about that very small sliver of the overall pie chart, because that's what we're talking about tonight. Less than a quarter of 1% of the fans got Bioware to cave and put together a new ending to satisfy them. They spoke for the other 99.75% of us. Their number was so small in the grand scheme of things, it would show up on a budget sheet as a variable, qualifying as an acceptable loss to pretty much any stable business. Bioware backpedaled. They went back in and changed their art, art designed to evoke an emotional response, because of that minuscule amount of angry boys. It's notable that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle caved in the same damn way, bringing Sherlock Holmes back from the dead to appease angry fans. He killed his creation in 1893's The Final Problem, then eight years later, beginning in 1901, he wrote Hound of the Baskervilles set before this event and by the way thank god he did that's one of his best and then after two more years of fans refusing to believe holmes was dead in 1903 he finally backpedaled with the adventure of the empty house and holmes got better from his brush with the reaper got better but modern audiences weren't alive back then to experience the giddying high of forcing an author to appease you I said at the time in 2013 when we recorded fan response, like some podcasting Cassandra, that this was a seriously dangerous modern day precedent to, to be set. Well, uh, that this was a seriously dangerous modern day media precedent. Had Bioware stood their ground and said plainly, no, this is the ending to Mass Effect 3. And we are proud of the years of hard, hard work that all of us have put in bringing this series to you. They would have sent a very clear message. Instead, EA panicked at the idea of being reviled. They sent the clear message that if you don't like a piece of entertainment and if you scream loudly enough about it, the creators will change it for you. And things have become measurably worse in the years since. Those gamers who signed the petition treated art like a product, like they were complaining that Coke's new pull tabs hurt their fingers. And because they won, they felt a sense of power and control and ownership, galvanizing the argument made at the time that since they had invested dozens of hours into playing Commander Shepard, they had as much right to alter the story to their liking as the people who actually spent several years of their lives making the game. They claimed since the theme of the game was all about choice, that they should be able to choose a different ending. I'm not going to go into why I feel this is a wrong-headed take-home on that game, but we did an epic-length show on Mass Effect 3 for you to check out on the School of Everything Else archive feed right now. At the time, I invoked Annie Wilkes, that's Kathy Bates' character in Stephen King's Misery, a woman who ties the author of her favourite book series to a bed and won't let him leave until he rewrites his most recent novel to her appeasement. But like a disease, things have advanced worryingly in the years since. Now that fandoms most obnoxious had won a major victory and remoulded the worlds to their liking, both fictional and real, too many began feeling that intoxicating sense of ownership like never before. 
Star Wars in 2015 was already in trouble, as a lot of long-time fans were furious at having lost the expanded universe, a collection of dozens of books and hundreds of comics written over the past 38 years with the approval of Lucasfilm. It was never coordinated back in the day, with many authors approaching the further adventures of Luke and Leia and Han post-Return of the Jedi from different angles that were all regarded as canon. Suddenly, with the stroke of a pen, they weren't canon anymore because there wasn't a cat's chance in hell that Disney were going to allow themselves to be constrained by storylines that the vast, vast, vast majority of cinema goers don't even know about. Disney made their own new canon with Blackjack and Nazis, and because the first new film was deliberately vague by design regarding how everything got to where they are three decades after Return of the Jedi to allow fans, both new and old, to imagine what the new state of the galaxy far, far away was like, a lot of events and people and storylines didn't turn out like some fans had hoped. The Force Awakens presented questions, The Last Jedi presented answers, and both evoked ire. The problem is that the angry fans are still in the minority. They don't represent all or even half of the approximately 133 million butts on seats that went to see The Force Awakens. It made $2 billion and scored very highly with critics. The Last Jedi made $1.3 billion, which is still amazing money when you consider that the only two movies that The Force Awakens didn't outstrip were Titanic and Avatar. So basically, The Force Awakens made an amount of money so obscene and huge that you can't even really judge cinema against it. So $1.3 billion for The Last Jedi? Still pretty good. When you consider that Attack of the Clones made $649 million, people were going back to see these films two or three times. There was a great deal of goodwill and excitement for Star Wars. But if you take the minority of those who didn't like Last Jedi and subdivide it, you have a lot of very different types of people. Some are loud, some are silent and invisible, some have valid arguments to be made about story structure and character decisions that would certainly be worthy of debate, if it weren't for the shower of racists and homophobes and misogynists so terrified and hateful of women that a female lead getting anything to do at all is a cause for an internet riot. And then there's the percentage of that group that don't really care about Star Wars at all. A lot of the racists and sexists are in this category anyway because it's really hard to love something that's about being a rebel and fighting for the rights of persecuted aliens whilst also squealing about the SJW agenda. It is, however, very easy to broadcast your hatred for women and people of colour using the filter of Star Wars fandom. To claim that something is being breached by these studio decisions to appeal to more than just white boys. But you get trolls in there just trying to stir shit up. You get specialised Russian trolls whose literal job it is to sow disharmony among fandoms. And a percentage of that minor minority percentage will be robots. Simple programmes designed to spout bigotry and nonsense. The ultimate aim being disruption, disharmony, and destabilization, especially of young people, especially within America. It is not a great time to be a basically decent person, but also to not be a fan of The Last Jedi, because of the company you're forced to keep. Those are your roommates, Cletus, Ivan, and Hatebot5000. But it's also not a great time to be a fan who loves Star Wars. Someone who has loved it since 1977, or 1980, or 1983, or 1996, or 1999, or 2002, or 2005, or 2008. Or that weird one in 1985 with Wilford Brimley. I have aged phenomenally. 
Or if you're just a little kid who, at age seven in 2015, went to see The Force Awakens and loved it, and you're a girl, and you were just so pleased that Rey got to do stuff the way it seemed that Leia was never really allowed to. Leia was never taught about the Force, never got to use a lightsaber and fight the Dark Lord. You liked the original movies, you even liked the prequels a bit, but this one you really loved. And then you go online and it's a mix of adulation for the film that you love and a screaming shitstorm about it being a remake and Ray being something called a Mary Sue. Would that make you want to be a fan and connect with others who liked Star Wars or would it make you want to take a big step back and go find something else to do? With Star Wars, it seemed like they don't want women there doing much at all. That exact shit happened to our daughter Lyra. But even if you're an adult and you're getting into things that are new, you face a rocky road. In 2009, having never liked Star Trek at all, I adored the J.J. Abrams film, The Star Trek. It made me go back and watch all the movies in order with a newfound appreciation. I loved both Spocks in particular. But Star Trek fans mourning the apparent death of their decades-old TV continuity bitched and moaned about the Kelvin movies. Didn't matter that they had thousands of hours worth of entertainment to trawl back through. As far as they were concerned, these movies were the death of that. In 2013, Into Darkness looked to be a promising remake of Wrath of Khan, and then I saw it, and it was, and everyone seemed furious about that fact for some reason. They bitched and they moaned about sneaky J.J. Abrams and his gosh darn stealth remakes. And then Star Trek Beyond came out, and I kind of went in with a dulled appreciation, and it was an okay movie. Star Trek fans were more appreciative because it had less of the stuff that I liked about Kirk and Spock, and starting out, and passion, and rage, and logic, and life, and death, and being emotionally compromised. And it felt more like an inconsequential episode of the original TV show, where not too much ultimately happened. And it was unamazing as a movie, just like Nemesis. Beyond also made less money than Into Darkness made only 343 million relative to 467 million but nemesis in 2002 only made 67 million and that would have been why they did things differently in 2009 as a means of snaring a much bigger audience which is the remit of the movies to bring that niche appeal tv show for nerds to families who otherwise would pass it by to keep the world alive with the interest of the many when the money from the few would otherwise start to run out Then Star Trek Discovery came out on Netflix and some fans bitched about there being a woman officer or a woman captain when we already had one with Janeway or that she was Chinese or that she was black or they got Klingons wrong or the Enterprise wasn't made on Earth, it was made up in space or the Enterprise can't go underwater or fuck fucking Star Trek, I'm done with it, you win. You push me out, Star Trek fans, enjoy whatever else you get. The needs of the few are, after all, the most important, Spock told me in the Transformers Dark of the Moon. And if you are a Star Trek fan and you didn't take part in the above, then that sucks because we could have been friends. We still might be, but not about our shared love of Star Trek. That's what's at stake here. Fandoms have walls being built around them, now more than ever. And inside that wall is a closed system tending towards entropy. Thermodynamics nerds know what I'm talking about here. When I said on Twitter that we would be covering all three Matrix films eventually, someone in my timeline tweeted, I liked the Matrix sequels with their flaws before I found out I had to hate them. And that made me really think hard about what fandom does to a story, the immense pressure it places on those within its ranks to all feel a certain way. This is surely not how things were supposed to be. And when those imbalances occur, it can lead to conflict, ostracization, loneliness, depression. These are supposed to be groups we join to discuss and bond with others about worlds and characters we all feel something about. 
When did it get to the point that among every hundred fans, the foot and part of the lower leg of one of these fans got to set the poisoned tone for discussion to be all about how the thing they all love is dead? Because that's where this has gone. If you search for Star Wars is Dead on YouTube, you'll find more videos than you can comfortably watch, with the sole premise being Disney have now destroyed Star Wars with its SJW agenda, and invariably the thumbnail will be Admiral Holdo pulling a funny face. The same thing is happening with Marvel as we speak, since we're recording on the weekend Captain Marvel flew into theatres. It's the same boys every time, the same tactics, and it's tedious and it's energy sapping. They did it for Fury Road and The Force Awakens in 2015. They did it for Ghostbusters in 2016, then in a more limited capacity for Wonder Woman in 2017, because a lot of them don't want to say a bad word about the DC Universe. Then like crazy for The Last Jedi in late 2017, and shortly afterwards for Black Panther in 2018, and by God in 2019, are they crying out against Captain Marvel, impotently, pathetically, fruitlessly. Now, doubtless there will be some girls in there as well, but I have only ever seen one or two in this sea of pale, angry, white boy faces, so I'm going to carry on calling them boys, and some of them are 47, but this is a boy's attitude, so I'm going to carry on calling them boys. In fact, as of the Lego Movie 2 show, I christened them hate boys, because being a boy should be fine. The word needs a modifier to distinguish this rotten sub-sub-sub-section of boydom. Now, if you look at the artwork on this week's episode on your phone right now, you will see that I have put together a wheel to help us examine fandom. The most important thing that I need to say as we are moving forward here is that I am not going to make the mistake of gatekeeping. I'm not going to commit the no true Scotsman fallacy. The one that excuses the shitty behaviour of an individual or individuals within a group by stating that their behaviour marks them out as being not of that group. Principally because you can't clean house that way. And because I don't want us to dictate what a fan is or isn't. Clearly, a fan is capable of doing these horrible things. And a lot of them are guilty of ejecting other potential fans from a community by demanding credentials, especially from women. So this isn't about what is or is not a fan. This is about the various human emotional reactions that make up our fandoms. This is about evolving beyond a binary system we seem to have found ourselves trapped in. I touched on this with Morpheus last week in our Matrix show, but there is so much potential damage packed into that phrase. You are either with us or you are against us. It paints the world black and white, or black and filled with glowing green ones and zeros. But that is the simplified argument among fandoms everywhere. The ludicrous notion that there is a divide down the middle with people who do like the thing on one side and those who don't on the other side. The compounded notion that the line is exactly in the middle, that both sides are entirely equal in number, that both viewpoints are entirely equal in merit. Or, and this has been very prevalent in recent years, that the dissenting voices come from a group far, far larger than it actually makes up in reality. Stop booing. There's nothing wrong with it. There are dozens of us. Dozens! Look at the left and right hand sides of the color wheel now. <clears throat> on the one side you have like, on the other dislike. And above and below on either side there are ten other feelings you can have about a thing. And I must state that this diagram is basic, and it is designed to be as readable as possible because it is representational of countless complex feelings. But in the interest of just getting to the point, we've just put it down to 12. Also, your thoughts on a matter don't necessarily travel in a straight line, up or down the scale, nor does it circle in one direction or another, like the arm of an adjusting clock. 
it's better established as a barometer with quite an erratic needle that can leap from love to hate inside of a minute with no time spent passing secure love nor collecting $200. What this color wheel might achieve for some who are able to look at it is the overall goal of this podcast, to be released from the anxiety of association with the hate boys. What we are saying with this is that unless your feelings about Star Wars stem to signing petitions to have Ryan Johnston's film struck from canon, and unless you relentlessly post on Reddit about... and SJW stealing your toys, that is not you. That is not you. If you listen to our show, it can't be you. Otherwise, we'd have heard from you already, and you would have been very obnoxious. Now, I know that statistically speaking, the vast, vast, vast majority of our listeners aren't anything even really approaching that. But there's a chance that a few of you are on the fringe or uncertain or you're already angry over things I've said, in which case this show is even more important. Because if you're questioning this and you're questioning yourself, then it's not too late. And if you're hurting, that almost certainly needs addressing. Just this morning, while editing this episode, I received an email regarding last week's Matrix show from a self-proclaimed red pill who was very polite and informed me that red pill is a term used by not the extreme fringe right, but by most normal people on the right, in order to let other people know that they are awake, no longer believing in the lies and propaganda of the left and the government. Ergo, they see the world for what it is. These are his words. He says, the left have their own version of the red pill. They call it being woke. Basically the same thing. And it's being used by the normal people and the fanatics. So, woke fanatics. As I said, he was very polite, and I hope he's listening, because it seems like a lot of what I said on The Matrix Show really didn't hit home. Inadvertently, though, what could be seen as a horrific false equivalency of saying being woke and being a red pill are the same thing, if this statement is true and red pill is something that not just a small subgroup of young men, but middle-class, middle-aged white conservatives of all genders also apply to themselves, from Supreme Court judges down to the wives of Supreme Court judges, this listener has highlighted the fundamental difference in approach for these two political persuasions. Being woke is something the left go through when they realize that there is suffering in the world, and specifically that they can act to help others. From what I've just been told, the normal people on the right equate that same feeling of awareness with realizing they're being lied to by the system and that they have to look out for themselves all the more. If nothing else, this proves that not everyone listening is going to agree with everything I say. So let us go through all of these 12 points together. I'll call out a point and you girls and guy elaborate on how a person might be feeling if the needle lands here. Indifference. Now this, uh, if you if you look up the opposite of love, it's not hate, it's indifference. It's not the exact opposite of I think like it's it's the opposite of secure love. But it's, it's where you... Like, anyone want to explain what indifference is? Because this applies to people as well. This applies to how you can feel about a person. Because that's, that's, that's how a lot of fans kind of take their, their, their love of the, uh, the thing in general. Oh, gosh. I'm going to take this into a dark place pretty quick. Okay. Oh, Christ. Um, so, speaking about media, indifference, at least to me, goes back, like, as a quick 
aside to a conversation that you and I had earlier, you mentioned something about The Wrinkle in Time, and I said, oh, yeah, that was a movie. And so, like, <laughs> just total indifference in, in, on my part in that way. But indifference has can, can potentially have a negative edge whenever indifference is inappropriate for a situation. You know, speaking as a trans person, I can see a lot. We, we talk about indifference with allyship with any kind of minority. And indifference is better than hate, but you also can't rely on like somebody who is indifferent can't be an ally to somebody who who might need them it's the least and, invested part of fandom yeah well it's, it's, you're so, not it's not being in the fandom yeah you're not invested at all but that indifference can manifest in some like really problematic ways proclaiming i don't see color to people of color can come off as indifference uh, recently, there was actually a news story about a trans man who was beaten by five people at a 7-Eleven downtown here in Pittsburgh. Um, and uh, there were a handful, like half a dozen to a dozen people who observed it and did absolutely nothing to stop it from happening. And so that is the real problem with indifference is that it it, it kind of goes back to that old adage that all that is necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because even, you know, on much lower stakes, something like, you know, Star Wars or whatever, if people, well, I mean, even that, like, you don't have to necessarily, like, fight that battle. You don't have to choose that hill to die on. But, like, it helps to have an opinion on these kinds of things. There's, um, oh, gosh, and now I'm going to quote fucking Destiny. Oh, I'm sorry. Can I swear? Yes. (laughs) We can't get through this show without swearing. (laughs) There's a... There's a quote. There's a quote in Destiny that I, I really like. I might end up getting it tattooed on myself with the rest of my Destiny stuff, which is, um, "A side must always be taken, little light, even if it's the wrong side." And I'm like, "There's problems with that," but at the same time, it does kind of highlight some of the elements of where indifference can be problematic as well. Mm. Here's a question then: with indifference in terms of how it relates to fandom or pieces of media. One thing I've seen popping up quite a bit lately, and this is this is eternal, this has always been there, but the in particular in the diversity context, the argument of, well, I don't care what colour they are or what gender they are or what sexuality they are, I just want it to be the best that it can be. I just want it to be the best person for the job. Would you say that falls within the indifference category? Mm-hmm. I, I I would say that that's it, it is it is indifference, but it is a kind of indifference that it is that insidious indifference, but it's almost like aggressive indifference mm. in a sense where it's not so much like, oh, I never really thought about it or like I don't really have an opinion. It's it's actively saying like, oh, no, I don't want to be involved in that. And actually, I have a, a really good example from work um, that I can I can use to illustrate this, I think. Uh, So, as I've mentioned, in a lot of places, I am faculty at a university, and I teach in the pharmacy program. And one of the things that we do in all of our classes is we have patient cases, like paper patient cases that the students work through. And many, many years ago, and this was the prevailing concept until I came along, was that in order to avoid certain demographic problems, quote-unquote, you just don't mention those demographics. So you just say, you only mention the demographics that are relevant for the patient case. So you say, okay, like we have a, you know, 58 year old man, 
uh, da 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 but you never mention what race, or you never mention, you know, maybe what gender if it's not necessary. And that's so that you as the instructor can say, oh, like, I wasn't taking a racial stance. But the problem with that is that we all were, we live in a society, and this society has a cultural default for what that is. And so that cultural default, at least here in America, is able-bodied, cisgender, heterosexual white men. And um, that's, that means that if you leave a part out, your brain is automatically going to fill it in with that. So if you say, well, you know, I don't care, like, oh, I don't really see that. I don't really pay attention to race. I just want it to be the best it can be. Well, the thing is, your marker of what the best it can be has been shaded by many, 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 many years of the society and the culture and the media actively pushing out creators of other races and genders and able uh, like ableness and 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 background that you don't even know what the marker of good is in this context because you only have one lens to view it through however there's there's merit to indifference as well you only have so much energy to give so if you ask me about farscape for example i am entirely indifferent to farscape I, uh, I don't know if we, we watched a few episodes or I looked into it and I just, it wasn't my thing. And uh, I just, I'm, I'm indifferent. I, I, I don't care. And, and that, that's fine because there's so many things. <laughs> there's so many things. Yeah. But the thing is, Alex, if you heard a news story about an actress from Farscape being like stalked and, and harmed in some way, you would have an opinion about that regardless of your opinion of farscape because there's some there's like when the stakes are raised like you you your indifference will uh, you might be like well i still don't really like care about the the media but the fandom around it like i'm still not going to be indifferent if something bad happens of course not we're talking about two completely different things i'm talking about i don't want to watch farscape i have a serious investment in people not mistreating women that you can call uh, uh, You're not indifferent to that. Yeah, we right. can call, call that a, a, a love or secure love <laughs> yeah. of, of, of wanting women to be treated well that has nothing to do with Farscape. My, my, my point, though, is that indifference only works when the stakes are low. Yeah. Yes, that is very true. Oh, yeah. in, that's, that's in terms of the, this is a, a piece of media that particularly appeals to me or doesn't particularly appeal to me, but I'm not going to go lashing out at anybody because of it bingo okay right so let's talk about the mares <laughs> somebody <laughs> said hang on there's a mare on each side what's the they, are they both the same what's the difference consider what the difference between a mare towards like and a mare towards dislike might mean it i would say that a mare towards like is i don't necessarily mind it it's not something that you know that I, if somebody brings it up, I don't care. Uh, for example, I just don't. For the most part, uh, online gaming, like multiplayer stuff, I don't care. It's just mm. not my thing. Yeah, I want to see when I play a game. I want something with an interestingly crafted story. I don't want to have to deal with other people. Mm. Um, meh. On the other side of things is stuff that I just don't want to hear about. It, I don't have a burning hatred for it. It, it just does not bring any joy to my life to have to deal with those things and to have to hear about those things. Hmm. So I prefer not to. 
I was just going to say I could probably sum it up in a sound. There's meh, and then there's meh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The That's way I, the yeah. Uh, somebody said, hang on, mayor is indifference. No, 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 no. It's the difference between the British, I couldn't care less, and the American, grammatically incorrect, I could care less. I could care less means you care a little tiny bit. I couldn't care less means the amount of that I care is zero. I could care less means the amount I care is one out of ten. Yeah. I could care less about this stupid test means that you could care less, meaning that there is a blip, a little tiny amount of care in there. There's one or two things that you really like, but everything else you find boring. Yeah. Or, you know, that this one scene is freaking amazing and everything else just, Mm. eh, lose interest. That is sort of how I feel about South Park nowadays, especially because last year I tried to watch some of the earlier episodes that were being released of their newest season. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, I think I even told you about this. By the end of maybe three episodes, I was completely stone-faced, silent, barely had cracked a smile. And now anytime someone brings up South Park, I kind of go, meh. Like, I I don't even want to talk about it. I don't want to discuss it. I want to just forget that they're even making new episodes because those last three that I saw were so bad. And I did not even come close to laughing even once. They just were not funny to me anymore. But that does mean you care about it just enough to not want to talk about it. If you're like, no, nah, you can talk about it if you want, that's indifference. If you're like, no, nah, I don't want to talk about it, that's a level exactly. one meh in that mm-hmm. direction. I think the way I, I, I put it to Sharon was, it's possible that if you are just finding out about something, and you're like, oh, okay, so I haven't really heard much about it, but okay, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of like... I'm, I'll dip a toe in. I'll dip a toe in. That's a, the, the, the sort of the light green meh on the left. If, however, you used to like something... And your like for that thing has been diminished and diminished and diminished to the point where you just don't want to know anymore. That is the orangey meh on the right. Bingo. I think that makes sense. Exactly. Because, yeah, yeah, they're both meh, but one of them's like, "Eh," and the other one's like, "Eh." (laughs) it's the sound. I mean, really, when we go left and right, it's kind of easy to just sort of like do an amplified version of what we just said. On, in like with the reservations and dislike, but can still see some merit. Yeah, so if you guys want to, why a wheel makes a lot more sense than a, a binary. Yeah, and certainly not a line where you've got don't care at the bottom on the far left and love at the top. Because where the hell does hate go? So yeah, no, it works much better with a wheel. Would you girls and guy like to talk about like with reservations and dislike, but can still see some merit? As far as the like with reservations and the dislike but can see some merit, I think that's the best place to be to have like a discussion with yeah. another person is to be on either side of that. My my personal favorite example is um, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Okay. So for me, Breath of the Wild is very hard dislike but can still see some merits. While most people that I know and have talked to range somewhere between secure love, well, maybe obsession and like with reservations. And I think that those end up being really good conversations where with a person who is like with reservations, because then you can see the like where 
Like when I say, oh, you know, Breath of the Wild, like, ah, it really didn't work for me because like the primary verb you do is climbing, but there's like a weather system that completely obviates that, that just wastes your time. And then another person be like, okay, yeah, but like this system was really good to complement it. And like those end up being the most enriching conversations that I've, I've had, I think, on a given like media topic when I'm at likes with reservations and I'm talking to somebody that is dislikes but can see merit or the other way around. Yeah, but when we did Sucker Punch, <laughs> I was firmly in the dislike but can still see some merit. I'm like, I get what you're trying to do, Zach. I get it. And you did really, really well at, at illuminating a lot of those things as well, Lauren. Thank you. But that oh. was one of our best shows. Because you were, yeah. what, what would you be on Sucker Punch? It's not just I, like, is it? No, no, no. I'm definitely a like with reservations. There you go, then. That'll be why it was yeah. such a great show. Yeah, I, I definitely think that there's something there where, where the best discussions are had between that green and that orange. Mm. Yeah, no, I think I agree there. All right, then. We'll maybe look at some movies and some teams that kind of fit that bill in future. Okay, so in the next one should just be like easy, like and dislike. It's where you like something or yeah, you yeah. don't. It's you take well, it or leave it's it. It's interesting. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, gosh. No, I mean, like, like is, uh, what do I like? What's, what's good? Um, see, I, I'm, I'm so fucking passionate about everything that I don't tend to just, just like things. If I, if I like them... I either have reservations or I, I love them. So, like, like and dislike sound very uncomplicated. Yeah. So, if you like something, I suppose it's it's then sort of how fixed are you in that category? Hmm. Is having that discussion, which, as you just said, can be the, at its most interesting when it's between somebody who's in like with reservations and somebody who's disliked. Oh, I got still it. See merit. Like and dislike. If you're if you're not budging from those categories, it doesn't necessarily make for a particularly engaging discussion because they're like, well, I like this. Well, I don't like this. Okay, then. <laughs> I was going to say Marmite because Marmite is a thing that in England is famously, you either love it or you hate it. So like you, you love having this strong, tangy, salty, kind of beefy spread on your toast or you it's hate beer it. It's leftovers. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like old yeast. Um, uh, or you hate it. You're like, ah, just makes me makes me sick. I like with reservations, Marmite. Like, I, you know, I like it on toast. It can sometimes be a bit too strong, and if you eat a big spoonful of it, you throw up, and then you remember throwing up for the rest of your life because it was like being overwhelmed with this dirty taste. <laughs> <laughs> and I like it, but I can't eat it. So I defy that whole love or hate thing about Marmite. Mm. I, I would say it's as being, like, kind of... If you have soft feelings, I guess, soft in terms of not super strong after one viewing. Yeah. yeah. Would I would I see it in theaters again? Like, that's definitely, for me, a, a like versus love. So yeah. I'm always very specific about my feelings, so I, I go to my reservations or I go to my, you know, and here's why it's actually really worthy of merit. Also, if you're very empathic, it's really difficult to, for me to just dislike something without seeing some merit. Like I could say I dislike fish, but I can see that everyone else loves it. Sharon in particular loves fish. Uh-huh. So it's really like I, I always look for a little kernel of good in something that I dislike. So like, I did movie a day for half a year and a whole bunch of these films are just toss. But I would always look for one thing about it that was good. 
So we've established from this that dislike and like are kind of a holding pattern, like a, I'm just going to be here until I've thought about it more, and then I can give it a more granular think. Now imagine going to YouTube and being told, say this is good or say it's bad. Can I have like with reservations? No, you've got to choose one or the other. And you can either like or dislike when you, like, you're not even really thinking about it. You're just like, no, down thumbs, don't like. It's like Ralph Wiggum. You kids don't know what you want. That's why you're still kids, because you're stupid. Just tell me what's wrong What the freaking show. I think this is something that is a peculiar problem of social media and it is getting worse. And mm-hmm. it's that thing of here is the thing, make a decision about the thing, make a decision about the thing now. No, you can't have extra time to think about the thing. Make a no, decision and express your decision. We need the Absolutely. likes. Absolutely. And more to the point, we need your ex- your we need your decision in a in a binary zero one response. You can't give us any detail, you can't give us any nuance, just give us a response. According to Ralph Breaks the Internet, those likes turn into money (laughs) (laughs) thank you Disney for simplifying that to the point of madness Yeah, we've pretty much established like and dislike. Now, that's strong like and hatred. I would have thought that love and hatred go up against each other, but strong like love and secure love, they're, they're much more fluid. They, they sort of blend into each other. You can like love something and like you, you like it a lot and like you think about it a lot. But dislike and hatred also sort of go into each other. Like, I think people use the term, I hate that far too much when what they really mean is that they strongly dislike it. Hatred usually comes down to, I want to destroy that thing. If you look at race hate, it comes from people who just want to exclude or just persecute people of a particular caste. Mm. It's not just like, I don't like you. It's that like they think about this type of person and they dwell on it. And hate is something that is, if you look at it in terms of emotional motivation, it comes from anger. Anger is a motivating force. It causes you to want to do things. Yeah. It's not a, if you, if you sit still and hate, that's going to poison you. Hate kind of demands to be acted upon, mm. if that makes sense. Whereas strong like is just, I like this thing, and you keep thinking about reasons why you like that thing. I always think of love and hate, or strong like and hate in this case, they're both uh, still attractive forces. And that's why indifference is the opposite of, of love. Mm. Because when you, when you like something, you strong like something or love something, that's still like an attractive force to you. Like you want to seek it out, you want to experience it, while hatred is also that where you want to seek it out because it makes you like angry and you can't believe that people bother with this kind of thing. It's like why I still have a Twitter account some days. I feel like, (laughs) Oh, I was thinking the exact same thing. There are days when I'm just spoiling for a Twitter fight. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm looking for somebody who I'm looking for somebody who uh, disagrees with me on something fundamental so that I can do something about it because I am already frustrated about that thing. Someone is wrong on the internet! As Dylan yes. Moran said, Oh, how I hate you! I hate you so much it gives me energy. I have to get up early in 
in the morning to hate you because there isn't time enough in the day. You're absolutely yeah. right, Lauren. Hate, uh, or sorry, anger and joy. Again, if we're if we're simplifying down to basic emotions, anger and joy are motion towards. They are uh, emotions that will lead you towards something. Yes, in the case of anger, it's to hit it, or you know, in some way, potentially um, attack it, and in it, it originates in the the hunger urge the fact that you need to go out and fight things in order to eat that's what it's it's kind of if you break it down to to animal response that's where it comes from and if the the ones that go in the other direction are fear which makes you want to run away from something really fast and disgust which motivates you to at least turn away from it even if you don't like physically move yourself away from it sorry so we established that hatred is is this potent cocktail of fear and anger it's it's something that drives you both towards and away from the it thing it can be yeah if you if you're kind of you're you've got an urge to rid yourself of this thing mm. but that's manifesting itself as destroy it rather than simply turn around and flee in the other direction I which think- I, I think this is where it it comes out in fandoms a lot and and the fact that you know we've talked about this sort of stereotypical angry white boy fan and we have talked many many times about how the only emotional expression that is permitted in certain people's upbringing is anger Hmm. and all the other emotions don't really get much of a look in so if all you have as a thing you can do is to be anger. angry about it. Yeah, it's the old hammer and nail adage. Everything looks like a nail. Mm. Uh-huh. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. Let's talk about secure love before we get down to an obsession. Because this is like the, where you love something so much that you actually kind of you're okay with you not being the thing that it's for. So, for example, I love the Walt Disney Company. A lot of what they do pisses me off. The people they fire, that uh-huh. upsets me. That's, uh, that's more of a like-with-reservations element to it there. But I want to see Disney do well because of all the good that they do and have done. Again, there's reservations there. But I'm secure enough to be able to hear Disney get criticised and not go, how dare you criticise Disney? Just go, yeah, okay, that's kind of not not really what they were doing with that. Or or, or just go, yep, Disney, that sucks. And this is kind of the secret of a successful marriage, where like if you're with someone, you can acknowledge their flaws and just go, kind of sucks when you do that, but I love you anyway. That's secure love. Yeah. Would it be fair to say that one of the reasons why this secure love concept is difficult for fandoms as a whole to promote is that it is by nature quite complex, especially when you're talking about companies and corporations. Because Mm -hmm. ultimately you you can be really positive about what a particular publisher puts out there mm. but they could have a CEO that makes some really appalling decisions like Pearl Matter. 
Yeah, I was about to say, as a Marvel fan, I feel that so hard. Yeah. Like, Perlmutter is one of the biggest assholes on the planet, but Marvel will always be my comic home. Yeah. It's just the way it He's is. Not that I don't like other things, but... Yeah. But, but yeah. To, to Stan, and I have issues with that term in and of itself because of what it relates to, but to, to really have that sort of um, obsessive, I, I adore this, that, that fandom is kind of... It's, it's the bread and butter of how that is presented is you you kind of you have to simplify to be able to do that um and we'll i mean we'll get into that a bit more when we start talking Mm. about obsession but in in terms of the the love of something where you want it to be better something that occurred to me the other day and i can't say what in context of because it's a spoiler but (laughs) to say of somebody or something i want you to be the best version of yourself if your next action is not to allow that person the space to work out for themselves what the best version of themselves is then you're talking out your ass because you want them to be the best version of them that you want and that's not wanting the best for that person there's an element of possession in there yeah exactly secure love is that if i became uh you know god forbid very very ill and it looked like i was going to die i would make sure that sharon knew when i'm gone do whatever it takes to be happy find someone else don't slave away trying desperately to get my books out if it's driving you nuts just leave it fuck it i'm dead doesn't matter just do what it takes for you to be happy the secure love stems from a place where it's that thing about planting a tree you won't live to enjoy the shade of Mm. it's the secure love that allows us to make the world better for our kids and our grandkids and just go you know what this is something i can do that's good with my time yeah it is not. Star Wars didn't make this thing for me personally. I am so angry. Absolutely. I don't like Solo. I do not like the Star Wars film Solo. I still don't like the prequels much, although I kind of like them a bit more than Solo. But I'm not bitching about Solo every day on fucking Twitter. I don't, I, I'm down to sort of meh with Solo, the orangey meh. It is not a good film to me, although I can still see some merit in that pe- some people like it. That, that's fine. But I don't care about star wars constantly making things just for me it's a misfire it's you know they'll carry on maybe they'll make some great films that i love as much as i you know i'd love them to make a film that i love as much as uh, the force awakens but i want star wars to succeed and they can't do that just making stuff for me yeah i think probably one of the better examples of stuff that was not made for me that i still am entirely secure in my love for is a lot of the recent cartoons Avatar and Korra were not made for me. They were not made for anybody on this podcast. They were made for children. And there are things about it that are very childlike and, you know, would not have been the way I go about it. But you know what? I still love them. Just because it's not for me does not mean it can't be good and does not mean that I can't adore them. I I would, yeah, I, I second that, number one. But I would also say for me, you know, no matter what I find out about Joss Whedon, and, you know, some of the things he's done that have made him a, a you know, not not a paragon of virtue, shall we say. Buffy will always be in that secure love camp for me. Mm. Is it, it, it affected me to my very core. I watched it at a time in my life 
where I desperately needed someone telling me that who I was was okay, and it profoundly influenced my own emotional development in good ways. It was something that that helped me be who I am today. And no one's ever, like, no one can take that away from me, you know? And, and even if I don't like some things Joss himself has done, this art will always hold a special place in my heart. Mm. And that's secure love, I think. Yeah, I think there's an element of, uh, kind of, of hunger, to go back to a word that, uh, Sharon had used earlier, where just looking at strong like love and secure love, like just thinking about the difference, the nuances between those, I'm thinking like strong like might be something like Hellblade for me, where we all, we talked on the podcast and I really like that experience and I really like that game, but it's finite. Like I've done that and I'm 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 good with the experience I had. I'm not rushing out to play it. Now then like a love might be more recently something like like Beat Saber, or some of the other VR games I've been playing where, like, I can't get enough of it. I just want to get more and more, and it's just just such a good experience. While a secure love, for me, a video game, uh, keeping into media, would be kind of like Destiny, mm. where I can see a lot, I can talk to a lot of people who don't have a strong of opinion and be like, yeah, no, I, I accept that. Like, but, but there's other people where I can be like, hey, you should check this out. Like, maybe we could play it a little bit. And I'm kind of that community is getting weird because people are being very critical of Bungie. And I'm just kind of like, you know what? I'm just kind of here for the ride. Like whatever you guys put out, I want to experience it. Let's, let's do this thing. But I feel very secure in that uh, particular like appreciation of it. And so I think that that's what I mean though, to go back to what I originally said is that like a strong, like is enjoyable, but you're not hungry for it. Love is you're hungry for it and you want more and secure love is, you know that more is coming, and just enough, and you're fine with what you get. Or maybe that maybe not more is coming. I love the original Mass Effect 2, and I, I quite like 1, and, and, and there was lots of merit in 3. And I did not like Andromeda at all. And as frustrating an experience as I found it, I did not take to Twitter to complain bitterly for days, weeks, months, years about Mass Effect Andromeda. And I saw people liking it and thought, okay, at least someone likes it. But I can accept that Bioware may be done and that that team may never reconvene and that there may never be a Mass Effect that I love, but that I have Mass Effect 2 and that I've had those experiences, even if I never play Mass Effect 2 again. I love that and I can accept that I won't necessarily get more. And that's another thing, like the, the idea of... like. You can love something even if it carries on without you, or even if you carry on without it. I, I wonder yeah. if this is where some of that fear element of the, the hatred that we talked about comes from. The yeah. the fear and the, the very irrational fear in the case of, of media that's already been produced, that what already exists and you loved is somehow going to be taken away from you. Yeah. It's different when it's like, George, would you please just release the original versions on Blu-ray? Oh, no, I, I, I don't think that. that's physically possible. Uh, um, I'm afraid a bunch of fans have done precisely that, George. Now what have you got to say? Um, well, I'm just selling it to Disney, so it's not, not on my hands anymore. Mm. However, did you like Sebulba in Return of the Jedi? We did not, George. No, we did not. Once again, compliments of We Hate Movies. But, <laughs> again, like... That, that's kind of a... It kind of sucks that everyone doesn't get those versions of the movies. I've got the despecialized editions. I have 
Mm-hmm. A joy in sharing. That's, again, part of the secure love. I want to share this stuff with people, and no one really has access to the despecialized editions, not legally anyway. So I would love for them to be out there, Disney, for the love of God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just have it be an option, like you you have said many times before. How many times have we gotten the versions of Blade Runner that has four different oh. versions attached to it, like the directors, the theatrical, the special the edition, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, and how fun it is to compare the different versions. And you may not do that all the time, but yeah. it's fun to kind of compare them. Yeah. So but, even if they yeah. just make it available, like I would stand right up to them and say, yes, I will absolutely shell out however many dollars you want for a gigantic Blu-ray special collector's thing (laughs) that has every single possible version of these movies, including the ones that I don't like. I I will happily spend money on the prequels. Again. I am led to believe my... I will happily do that. Again. Just to get the theatrical versions of the originals. If you can get a quarter of 1% of fans to, to sign a petition to that effect with you, you may well yeah. get them. Yeah, 1%, I better do is, it now then. I think that there is a conversation to be had about the fact that some media may well end up being lost through virtue of the fact that hard copy is starting to take a turn downwards. Oh, yeah. That there is... A bunch of things just not being released for, on Blu-ray in the UK. And for stuff, New to releases. Be, for stuff to be maintained online for streaming services or, or downloadable games or, you know, we've seen it happen numerous times with um, MMOs. There has to be a willingness for the company to maintain them. The company has to still exist. EA has to have not bought them and then shut them down. Sold for assets. But that yeah. doesn't or tend to be. Of piracy. It, well, indeed. But where yeah. where I see those conversations happening, and I say see them because I very specifically don't get involved with them on social media because I don't have the time or the energy for them. And that's my personal choice. I'm not criticising or judging anybody who does get involved with them. That's up to them. But it's that that is not the kind of conversation on social media that's for me. But when I see those conversations happening, it very rarely seems to be around that very legitimate concern. Mm. What we're expressing here is a secure love for the original Star Wars films that George Lucas and company put out, and a worry that those films will not be able to reach their success with a new generation on their own merits because they are gated away behind antiquated technologies and formats. That's a desire to share them, not a desire to control them. The term Stan that Sharon just used stems from a song by Eminem about an obsessive fan who over the course of several increasingly worrying letters loses touch with reality. Dear Slim, you still ain't called a row. I hope you have a chance. I ain't mad. I just think it's fucked up you don't answer fans. If you didn't want to talk to me outside the concert, you didn't have to. Could have signed an autograph for Matthew That's my little brother, man He's only six years old We waited in the blistering cold for you Four hours and you just said no That's pretty shitty, man You're like his fucking idol He wants to be just like you, man He likes you more than I do I ain't that mad, though I just don't like being lied to Remember when we met in Denver? You said if I write you, you would write back See, I'm just like you in a way I never knew my father neither He used to always cheat on my mom and beat her I can relate to what you're saying in your songs So when I have a shitty day, I drift away and put them on Cause I don't really gossip else, so that shit helps when I'm depressed I even got a tattoo with your name across the chest 
sometimes I even cut myself to see how much it bleeds It's like adrenaline, the pain is such a sudden rush for me See everything you say is real, and I respect you cause you tell it My girlfriend's jealous cause I talk about you 24-7 But she don't know you like I know you slim, no one does She don't know what it was like for people like us growing up You gotta call me man, I'll be the biggest fan you'll ever lose Sincerely yours, Stan, P.S. we should be together too so let's talk about obsession because this it actually shares several traits of love and several traits of hatred. Everyone we describe as a hate boy shows signs of dabbling in this corner. If you read through Fifty Shades of Grey, if you look at Christian Grey's behaviour, it does not run parallel with the traits of love. Uh, he doesn't love Anastasia. He is obsessed with Anastasia. Uh, he fixates on her. He's desperate to control her. Edward in Twilight, whom Christian Grey was based on originally, is a little more healthy. Seems to have Bella's best interests more at heart, but he'll still circumvent her ability to make her own decisions. I'll take myself away from you when I perceive myself to be yeah. bad for you. That's still me making a decision about what's best for you and not treating you like an adult. And these are based on books like Wuthering Heights by the Bronte sisters, where they show the darker uh, side of love, which is obsession, which is where you fixate on somebody and you want to control them. So Heathcliff was held up as a perfect example of this. And a lot of people read Wuthering Heights and went, huh, and thought, huh, about the wrong things. Like, that, 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 that is not... Yeah. Really a healthy thing to take away from that. Now, obsession in a fan sense is where you want to... Con- like, we've talked about this so many times already. Everyone should be on the same page. Like Everyone should know now that if I've ever said that these Last Jedi haters, you already know you're not this. You're in the dislike. You're in the dislike but can still see some merit. You might even be liking reservations. You might be in hatred or just strong dislike. Like, I fucking hate everything about that film. And frankly, I would like to destroy it. But obsession is where you talk about it every day. And recently, I feel like I've been talking about hate boys every day. That's why I want to do this episode to exorcise that and stop talking about them. Obsession in the context of fandom is where you go online looking for a fight. Obsession is where you make endless videos about how Disney are fucking everything up and how, uh, you know, their, their toys rot on shelves. All toys rot on shelves. The toy business is in shambles right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how the, it only made 1.3 billion as opposed to the third highest grossing film of all time that the first one was. There's a novelty value which is going to wear off. You fixate on Captain Marvel before it even comes out, and you hate it so much. You hate it so much that you're convinced it's bad, and you tell yourself it's bad. And you talk about how the the reviews are all rigged, and then you talk about the SJW agenda. And then when millions and millions and millions of people go to see it in the first few days, you claim the box office numbers are an SJW hoax. This is the fallacy of constantly moving the goalposts where you go to ludicrous lengths to prevent a win from the people you have decided are your enemies. And in this case, they're bending reality. They are making reason, jump through hoops and do gymnastics in an attempt to avoid Occam's razor. It's a good film and people like it. If you are a hate boy, if you are a victim of obsession, you fixate on it. You think about it as much as someone who loves it, but in the worst way possible. Let's take Bob's example of the 2016 Ghostbusters. 
female-led reboot that came out two and a half years ago that did okay and got decent reviews but ended up mostly notable for how much a bunch of babies got mad on the internet about it and then stayed so mad that they're still like the only people still talking about that movie. Seriously, not only do the people who really liked Ghostbusters 2016 not think about it as much as the dudes who hated it before they even saw it, the people who made that movie don't think about it as much as those guys. I liked The Last Jedi a lot. I loved several elements about it, but I don't think about it all that much. The reaction to it, I can't shake. That's a problem. And Alex, would you also, for that type of, of fan that is maybe on the DC side of things, mm -hmm. where you're insisting that everybody love the thing in exactly the same way that you do? Yeah. Would that kind of fall into that category as yeah, well? Yeah, so for example, when I did a, a video on uh, how they could fix the DC universe, it was all about, um, like, listen, that when they, they started this whole one-off on the, bat, the wrong foot by giving it to an objectivist to do Superman. He's already done yeah. that. It's called sure. Watchmen. It's a pretty good film. And mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the biggest problem I found in Man of Steel was uh, that Pa Kent tells Clark, you know, Clark's like, so we're supposed to let them die? And Pa Kent goes... Yeah, maybe. And the movie doesn't question that. At no point does Clark go, my dad was wrong. I'm just going to do this anyway. Fuck it. He continues to lionize him. Yeah. Uh, and uh, even in the second one, he talks to the ghost of Park Kent, and Park Kent's like, oh, you know, one time... Uh, oh, the Lang farm was uh, right next to our farm, and we had to do all this stuff, and like, basically... There was a know, flood. There was a flood, and, he's the like, whole, I, and he, he stopped yeah. the flood... And he, him and his dad worked all night to block up this flood, and they were considered heroes. And Grandma Kent baked a cake, a hero's cake. He says, as I was eating, he literally says, as I was eating my hero cake, the horses drowned. <laughs> I was eating my hero cake. That son of a bitch is eating hero cake. I can't breathe. This movie tries to have its hero cake and eat it too. And Batman v Superman, again, doesn't question Park Kent. So my video was about listen this is mental like you can't have Park Kent here be the voice of Superman uh, because he runs antithetical to everything about Superman and like it's not so much you can't do this it's when you do this people won't embrace Superman and they didn't this, is, this wasn't me saying you must do Superman to appease me it's listen there, there's there's a way of doing there's multiple ways of doing Superman but if you're going to set the backbone for the DC universe Probably a good idea to start with a Superman that everyone goes, yep, that's Superman. The way that you can look at Captain America and Wonder Woman and Iron Man and Spider-Man and just go, yep, 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 the whole way through. Um, and my video was just like, okay, so a new film that is in a parallel universe where you could even have Henry, you could have Henry Cavill, but it feels like he's kind of poisoned the DC universe and by now he's out. But I was saying, you know, J.J. Abrams is really, really good at rebooting series. It would make the hate boys furious because they hate J.J. But it would make money and people would go, oh, we're going to go and see this Superman that's full of lens flares. And um, you make it bright and colourful and, and that, that, that version of Clark actively questions his father and goes against that. And then he gets a glimpse into this other universe and sees how dark and horrible it is and goes, well, thank God that's not here. And then we carry on with that Superman. It was just kind of spitballing. It was a few years ago. The amount of shit I got on that one video of how dare you, there's nothing wrong with the DCE you well, well there is batman v superman got 27 percent freshness suicide squad got 27 percent freshness and although rotten tomatoes is an imprecise system it's still an indicator that they're not gelling with critics and when audiences come out going oh god some of those reasons will be what the critics picked up on and they didn't make anywhere near as much money as dc wanted 
Not wanting that to change is not loving Superman and Batman more. Just angrier. And my video was based on the real-world premise that people found Henry Cavill's Dark Superman off-putting. Listen, here's how you could do it to rescue this shit show that it's become. And just the amount of boys who would not hear a word said against what they thought was a really powerful version of uh, the, the DC Universe, and they didn't want it to change. And they were clinging on and abusing anybody who suggested that maybe there were problems with this. Yeah, and it, it delves into that level of this obsession where the thing that I like cannot ever be criticized. There's yeah. no room for criticism whatsoever. Yeah. They seek out others who hate like they do because they want to hear their furious views farted back into their own faces. If they find someone who likes that thing they now hate, they go in and make that person's life miserable. If they find someone who wants to change that thing they are obsessed with, they go in and make that person's life miserable. I did a YouTube video on The Last Jedi. It was rather unwisely confrontational in the first 30 seconds. A couple of hundred dudes from Reddit all turn up all at the same time in the same weekend, Christmas fucking Eve. Even the Allies and the Germans in the First World War had a ceasefire on Christmas. And just bomb my video of The Last Jedi <laughs> with hatred. And you just sit and you watch the amount of uh, uh, like pointy down thumbs and you're like, well this doesn't really feel accurate. It, it, it feels like uh, uh, one dude has told his angry dude friends about it and they're all turning up at once. <laughs> The comments were either, you know, this is fucking bullshit, how fuck you, uh, or I really, really like this, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, I, I don't know, it just feels slightly uh, unnatural. So the whole hate bombing Captain Marvel and then complaining when that feature gets taken away because you can now no longer give an accurate reading on what everyone says you we know that you just claimed you were gonna deliberately coordinate a hate bombing on it you're not even subtle about this shit although one yeah, they're, thing... they're not they're they're really bad at this yeah it's like it's like the p it's like conservatives who uh boycott things by buying the thing and then destroying, and then destroying it, it. Oh, <laughs> exactly. but but one thing that did occur to me about those uh, user downvotes for Captain Marvel on Rotten Tomatoes was now we know how many of them there are. There's about 52,000. That's it. That's yeah. all of them. Because if you care about it that much, you turned up on the day and you voted. Yeah. yeah. Sure. And then the normal people that just want to go see a movie and go, well, those Marvels are pretty consistently good. They don't bother with the user reviews. They don't look at that stuff. They just go to see the movie. If you get a 52,000 downvote, that is the new metric for a nearly perfect film. <laughs> 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 to me, I think an important element of the obsession that we're talking about here is both like a sense of ownership, but specifically through entitlement. Yeah. Mm. And it's jealously idea... guarding that thing. Yeah. It's, it's um, kind of like how I was describing, you know, strong like. But then when you get too much of a hunger, it goes into love. It's like you have your hatred, but when you have too much of a hunger for, like, de destroying that thing, it goes into obsession. Mm. And while, like they say, practice makes perfect, but obsession makes better, in this case, that's not entirely true. Um, and that, that sense of entitlement is something that a lot of brands and a lot of media things have kind of pushed over the years, a way of trying to incorporate, and a lot of social media plays into this, the fans into the the actual progress of some pieces of media to try to increase the number of sales. So there's like a certain subset of fandom who've really bought into that. 
And entitlement is really dangerous. Mm, very much. And oh, Lauren, you are absolutely onto something with that whole brand pushing that uh, that loyalty inverted commas because that's that's what keeps your customers if that's how you see these people that you're marketing to if you see them as customers you want them to remain loyal to you as a mm -hmm. as a brand as an organization because there's so much out there these days you could literally go and choose anything in the world there is no reason for uh, a group of people who like your thing to stick just with your thing and not wander off and go and try something else. And again, it comes down to this is this is what social media has done to distort the conversation. Because if you're going to be using social media for marketing purposes, you need people to be talking about you all the time. And if they are talking about you in a negative way, then that's fine, because at least then people are talking about you. And so the brands themselves have no real um no real motivation to discourage any of this yeah i'd or say they have motivation long term because being a new fan of the dc movies or comics is not an enticing prospect right now mm. like the, if, no. i would not envy the crew at dc having to make these new movies and trying to work out like when zachary levy put out like a little video thing to say Brie Larson's Captain Marvel and something like trying to pit Shazam against it and, you know, saying they're going to support us and not them because of things that they are, by the way, making up things that they're saying they saw some screening and this, that or the other is in the movie that I just found this out last night. And I, for anyone out there who thinks you're doing me a favor or you're doing Shazam a favor or you're doing Warner Brothers or what... You're not. You, this is not helping anyone or anything. Uh, there is no competition. <laughs> Just because Shazam used to be called Captain Marvel way back in the day doesn't mean that somehow Brie or Marvel's Captain Marvel are pitted against us. We're Sure, we're both movies and we're both going to be out in theaters at, at similar times. And the irony of, of that timing is, is really interesting for sure. But there is no conspiracy, guys. You need... Anyone out there who's holding on to some bone like they need to t pick a side and pick a fight is sorely mistaken. And uh, I really hope that you'll just chill on that. Don't don't go and engage in that type of behavior anymore. If you want to be passionate about either movie, rock and roll. If you want to be passionate about bo both movies, rock and roll. Can this not be a tribal war, please? Like He didn't have to do that, but it's like a little bit of humanity in amidst the fucking chaos. Well, you hit on something right there is tribalism, because one thing that marketers are is they're very good at psychology. And if there's one thing that humans are, it's incredibly tribalistic. Yeah. So if you can get somebody to internalize your brand as part of their identity, they're much more likely to buy it and, and like ride it out. And the kind of... There's something to be said about having something be a part of your identity because it's something that you really like. I mean, I talked about I have destiny arm tattoos. There's so many different terms, Trekkies, brown coats, things like that. But when that gets to the point of entitlement and ownership of it is where uh, people start to defend things in a way that they don't really need defended because they're, we're talking about movies. We're talking about video games. We're not talking about like – like race or gender or anything like that, but people make identities out of them and they see these kind of things as an actual personal attack on what they feel is like an inherent part of themselves. I mean, here in this country, there are entire 
towns out in you know the middle of nowhere where everybody there's everybody owns a truck and they're all of two different brands i couldn't tell you what brands those are because i really could not give less of a shit but ford and chevy uh, i'll just tell you right now there (laughs) there we go but for the vast vast majority of people who own a truck they do not need to use they do not need to own a truck like that it is entirely an aspect of their identity and it goes even further as to i am a ford owner i only buy ford trucks yes i'm an accountant and i don't actually haul anything but i'm a manly man and i drive a ford truck because that's what i'm supposed to do and people get into crazy wars about this but humans will take sides in things at the drop of a hat. I mean, most the most fascinating thing I ever read was a forum thread with people talking about whether they stand up or sit down to wipe their ass after they're done shitting, and it got really heated. <laughs> <laughs> so, human create a shitstorm. Yes. Oh. Yes. Ah. Sorry. But it's Couldn't the resist. But it's the idea that humans are fundamentally very, very drawn to tying themselves and their identity to things that they can then defend and and stand for, as it were. And that just can become very problematic if you are too tied in, too bought into that thing. And brands and marketing have really laid into it for a long time. Mm. The Gillette ad for one thing. I mean, like, that's kind of the opposite of what you were talking about, Lauren, where they're using this this very hot button button issue that they know is going to be controversial, that they know people have a very personal vested interest in and using it to create that conversation and become a trending thing and blow up on that note. It made me think of a video that was put out recently by H Bomber Guy, which definitely said this thing. Yes, absolutely. H-Bomber Guy did a a video called Woke Brands that came out about two weeks ago, and it talks about all of all of this stuff that uh, that we're talking about right now and probably much more, much more in depth and definitely much more research than us just talking off the cuff about it. So that's something to to check out if you want more of of how these brands are actually using that to create more of a conversation when they know that it's going to be a negative conversation. And even when they know that it's going to spark things like people throwing their Gillette razors into the toilet or taking their brand new Nikes and setting them on fire, that is still okay because they, yes, because they still have your money. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't understand this phenomenon of people putting so much of their identity into what they consume. And the thing is that, it's not because I didn't do this at one point. It's because I have consciously tried not to for so long at this point. Like I, I grew up during the console wars, guys. I was Sega ride or, ride or die. <laughs> I, that's just the way it is. When I was a kid, if we didn't get good at the game, we would be sent back to the beginning of the game. I didn't realize you were a veteran. Thank you for your service. I took my crack chips in my ass. Seriously, though, it's one of those. I did do that a long time ago, but I can no longer make myself understand that mindset. Again, I mentioned how much I love Marvel earlier. I still read a hell of a lot of DC comics and indie comics and all sorts of other things because. I like comics. I like good stories, and I like 
characters and all these wonderful things. And the idea of cutting myself off from something that I might truly love because it is not part of the thing that has become me just boggles my mind. And I just don't understand why people would do that. With all that said, I do sympathize with the people who hoped Star Wars or Star Trek or whatever their poison would go the way it has in their heads throughout the abiding years when it didn't. What we have then is a grief process. We're mourning the story we thought would happen and seemed so real to us. It can hurt worse than a breakup. And if that thing means that much to us, it can hurt more than a death. So it stands to reason that intensely strong feelings can become negative. It's the recognizing of that grief and coming to terms with it that allows us to move on. According to the Kubler-Ross model, grief has several stages, including denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally acceptance. Sometimes you don't experience them all. Sometimes it's in a weird order. And if acceptance doesn't come, we get stuck, like a ghost with unfinished business. If we do get stuck on the anger stage, our process is interrupted and we kind of end up seeking revenge upon the world for my dead Snoke theory. My biggest challenge, the thing I keep returning to, is the World War Z movie, a production that scuppered the chances of something being made for the screen that was anything like the book. And that comes from a place of wanting to share that with people who wouldn't choose to listen to the audio drama but might really love a film or TV show. I don't think about it much, I don't talk about it much, and I'm definitely not obsessed with it. But I also can't just let it go. And it's this acceptance of death that I must eventually reach. So I'm going to talk about Russian trolls and hackers here. This is just info. Might chill you to your bones. Uh, I'll keep it quick. Erin Brook, who's a writer on Twitter, compiled an eye-opening and lengthy account on Russian interference online. I'm going to read you some highlights now. And bear in mind, as I read this, that what she's talking about is neither 100% of the troublemakers nor 0%. It is a number significant enough to make things very horrible for everyone. But what they were doing was and remains stoking fires that are already there. We had horrible fans before they stirred the pot. Their goal was to make things unstable, to divide us and make us mistrust others online. Their enemy is a strong, confident, upbeat, unified, mature society that can progress towards actually making the world more livable. Okay, so Aaron Brooks says... I realise it seems impossible to talk about this stuff without sounding like a tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorists, but I suggest we all take a deep breath and put that fear aside because this is just the real surface stuff that we know about. Let's talk about Russia because I think there's a real cultural difference in how we in the West understand surveillance and what's actually happening with Russian efforts, so we have a hard time believing the depth of what's going on. On the internet, in 1998 and 99, Russian citizens were generally very democratic and varied. In 2000, suddenly... 60 to 80 percent of comments reflected totalitarian views. This is attributed to web brigades formed by the Russian State Security Service. Putin 
was first named Prime Minister in August 99. He was unpopular and not well known. A bunch of apartments were bombed and it was blamed on the Chechens. Putin used this to position himself as a strong leader. Yeltsin announced his resignation on New Year's Eve 1999. Putin was acting president up until the election in March. Putin ran almost no campaign and received one third of all the media coverage, though there were 12 candidates for president. He won. Before all this, he was foreign intelligence officer until 1991 when he entered politics. He became director of the Federal Security Service in 1998, responsible for internal security of the Russian state, counterintelligence, terrorism, etc. All law enforcement and intelligence agencies work under the FSB, Federal Security Service. They are the successor to the KGB, the Cold War era agency that Putin reformed before becoming prime minister. In 2012, a Russian hacktivist group published a bunch of emails belonging to a pro-Kremlin group, including a number of government officials. Journalists discovered that the pro-Kremlin group had been paying people to post comments, content, hijack blog ratings, etc. We had some problems with Russian uh, hackers on the uh, School of Movies site, I remember. They were just posting a bunch of shit about Russian brides and pornography. In 2013, Freedom House reports that 22 of 60 countries use paid pro-government commentators to manipulate online discussions. Russia is at the forefront of this and has been for several years. And here she links to an article in The Atlantic and one at the BBC. Uh, if you need to, I can link this to you. Just ask for them. Uh, through 2014 to 2015, journalists investigated troll armies as the Ukraine conflict escalated. One account found a Twitter network of over 20,000 fake Twitter accounts to spam negative comments about the Ukraine. An article in The Guardian is linked here with more details. In 2014, Russia expands its system of operational investigatory measures laws to include social media activity. All telecommunications companies already have to track, record and store telephone, email and web browsing activity. This adds social media. Also in 2014, Russia passes the Bloggers Law. Bloggers with over 3,000 daily readers are required to register and cannot be anonymous online. All orgs that provide platforms like search engines, social networks, forums, must maintain computer records on Russian soil of everything posted in the past six months. Yes, that means Facebook, Skype, Google, Twitter. Internet service providers must also track and store data according to the Bloggers Law and disclose this data and all information necessary to authorities on request, without a warrant or a court order. In 2017, virtual private networks are banned in Russia. In 2018, online messenger services that allow unidentified users are banned in Russia. In 2018, messenger, email and social networks that allow encrypted data must allow the FSB to read encrypted messages without a court order. Russian trolls and bots are also part of the anti-vaccine rhetoric. There's a link to Alpha Publications. On a side note, by the way, a really fucking excellent way to commit germ warfare on your enemies is to convince some of them that vaccines are a bad thing. Because then they make themselves and everyone else sick. By now, it should be widely known that Russia was involved in both Brexit and the 2016 American election. Other things we know Russian web brigades to have worked on include... Star Wars The Last Jedi. Erin links to an article on Slate. In weaponizing the haters, The Last Jedi and the strategic politicization of pop culture through social media manipulation, researcher Morton Bay collected and analyzed tweets that directly addressed director Ryan Johnson, set over a period of eight months, beginning with the day of the movie's European release. 
Bay found that 22% of the 967 tweets that he examined were negative, firstly suggesting that the movie may not be nearly as divisive as the backlash made it seem. More disturbingly, Bay also found that of that 22%, more than half of the negative tweets may have come from bots or trolls, or sock puppets, or political activists using the debate to propagate political messages supporting extreme right-wing causes and the discrimination of gender, race, or sexuality. So from these findings, we can conclude that roughly 10% of tweets directed at Ryan Johnson were from real people who had a beef with The Last Jedi. Johnson himself wrote on Monday that even before reading the study, its findings are consistent with his experience online. And just to be totally clear, this is not about fans liking or not liking the movie, said Johnson. I've had tons of great talks with great fans online and off who liked and disliked stuff. That's what fandom is all about. This is specifically about a virulent strain of online harassment. Russia is on your pages, in your groups, in your comments. In 2016 and 2017, nearly 30 million people actually shared Russian propaganda. That's the population of Canada. Link here to TechCrunch. Now, these are trolls, not hackers, though some of the disciplines are the same. Russian hackers are the best in the world, eight times faster than their closest adversary. Link here to an article in Wired. When it comes to online espionage, speed, while not everything, is a major factor. Their chief interest is hacking the Five Eyes, which is an Anglophone intelligence alliance comprising the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. This concludes Erin's points. The rest is from me. Yes, Russia absolutely stirred the pot on Gamergate. It doesn't matter that there may have been people involved in that fiasco who genuinely believed that they were fighting for a good ethical cause. They were allying themselves with the worst of the worst and malicious trolls who just wanted to disrupt the online space. And they succeeded, amazingly. So what does this mean? It means we have to get used to a world where the Russian government will potentially always be seeking to disrupt and spy on other nations using their online agents. It's like the Cold War only less civilized, even more nonsensical, and with Russia ignoring all the rules of engagement, and with the five eyes on their best day being not an equal online opposition, Russia have an astonishing advantage. So what can we do? First up, for the love of God, send everything that looks like a phishing scam to your trash. That's one of the major ways they gain access to your system. And we can accept these facts and make sure everyone is as clued up as possible and crucially is able to get on with their life. Wary and vigilant, especially of fake news and shit-stirring in an age defined by it. Cold War cartoons G.I. Joe were right about one thing. Knowing is half the battle. Correct. Knowing is half the battle. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. Eight Fallacies Several years ago in 2014, the now-closed-out Idea Channel on YouTube, a sorely missed collection of brain food and perspective from Mike Rugnetter and Cornhaber Brown, published a collection of fallacies most often found in internet arguments. I strongly urge you to seek out these videos and watch them for yourself. Things have only gotten worse in the interim five years due to the sheer deluge of all eight of these. In very simple terms, there's the straw man argument, where you overly simplify a complicated situation in order to knock it down. And I'd like to think that's not what this whole podcast is. We've put a ton of effort and research in here. The ad hominem argument, which is you're wrong and you smell. 
the black and white argument, which is the either you are with us or against us, we've already dealt with that one, the authority argument, which is you are not authorised to make those statements, the no true Scotsman fallacy, which would be no true nerd would ever do this, they were just a bad apple or an outsider, then there's the fallacy fallacy, which is to go, ah, I spot a fallacy in what you're saying, which means that everything you've just said is wrong, which is not always the case. Then there's the Texas Sharpshooter fallacy, which I will play for you at the end of this bit, as it's quite intricate. And finally, moving the goalposts. See the guys who are furious about Captain Marvel for that one. The constant changing of circumstances whereby your opponent scores a win state. I'd say if we're honest, all of us have at some point in our lives probably done this, at least once for each. But if we are aware of them, we can do our best to not fall afoul of them, either in ourselves or in others that we come into conflict with. So that's the idea channel, logical fallacies, and then even more fallacies. The Texas sharpshooter fallacy is one where an argument is made and confirmed using the exact same set of information. It's named after a story about a Texan shooting at the side of a barn. After firing the last round, he walks over to the barn and draws bullseyes around the sets of holes that make him look like a great shot. Essentially, cause and effect are reversed. We believe the Texan is a great shot because of the appearance of his targets, when in fact the appearance of his targets is determined by his shots, which are nothing special. In conversational practice, a Texas sharpshooter ignores information outside of a desired result. Only things which have hit a target drawn ex post facto are considered worthy. For example, Mike and Stromike are talking about very awful and morbid statistics for workplace fatalities. In the United States, we focus most of our workplace safety efforts on protecting women rather than men. Over 90% of the victims of workplace deaths are male. It's awful how many people die each year on the job. I think it's important to note that all of the most dangerous professions, construction, shipping, and manufacturing, are in heavily and historically male-dominated industries. To address your concern that we're worried more about women's workplace safety than men's, I think we should be looking at men and women doing the same jobs in the same industries. Stromike has drawn a target around statistics which support his most likely pre-existing idea that men are second-class citizens. He has ignored outlying information. Specifically, that there are more male victims of workplace death because historically, there are fewer women doing the most dangerous work. Not because, or not just because, a lack of appropriate protection for male workers versus female workers. The Texas sharpshooter is related to confirmation bias, a type of cognitive bias where people have a tendency to interpret things in ways which confirm their own beliefs, ignoring that which challenges or disproves them. Which is to say, you might might not be a Texas sharpshooter on purpose. Your sneaky brain might be doing it for you. But ignoring conflicting information is no way to win an argument. If you're standing on the shoreline, facing inland is not going to keep your feet dry. I hope this discussion of the Texas sharpshooter fallacy has been helpful. Happy conversing. Having mixed feelings is not only something to not be ashamed of, but a state of mind to feel comfortable having, even if, conversely, your mixed feelings about the thing itself make you uncomfortable. So, for example, uh, the new Ghostbusters film. You know, I, I've got mixed feelings. I'm sad that they're leaving behind the, uh, the, the female Ghostbusters, at the, the very least for now. I'm very sad that it's going to feel like a win for the worst kind of people pretending to be fans. But I am 
interested in seeing what can be done with the, uh, the, the series. And that's fine. It's actually fine to have mixed feelings, and you don't really have to settle on a extreme. And I think one of the things that's hurting us the most as fandoms is the nudge towards an extreme. You've got to love it so much that you think about it all the time, or you've got to hate it so much that you think about it all the time. Either way, do one or the other. It's better for the marketing. I don't think it is. Like I say, long run, I don't think it is better for these uh, fandoms that obsession is considered a positive. The other day I saw somebody that I won't name proudly proclaiming that Star Wars had a hate-dom. This is a remarkably self-aware hate boy. A lot of them will cling to the idea that they love this thing, even if all evidence is to the contrary. So that's what this show is ultimately in aid of. It's about identifying hate boys, not so we can punish them, or even so that we can reliably exclude them. We can't push them out of the fandoms and just make them go away. No, correctly identifying this behavior is about accepting it as a naturally occurring phenomena, acknowledging that things have gotten worse now, but that we can minimize the adverse lasting effects on everyone. And crucially, it's about reassuring everyone else. It's about making things clearer, this is not you. While I lament this shitty behavior online, I'm not talking about you. Our conflict arises among people who get prickly because they happen to like things that everyone else hates, like the Matrix sequels or Fantastic Beasts, or because they hate things that everyone else likes, like Harry Potter or Bacon. And this is an absolutely natural response. We can't all be zen-like masters of our own emotional reactions. In reality, nobody who is is talking about the new Star Wars movies on Twitter. They're all up a mountaintop somewhere achieving enlightenment. They don't care about Star Wars. I'm all about minimizing damage and healing wounds and arguing better and failing faster, understanding and perhaps being a little more reserved with our own strong responses. And I've had a bajillion strong responses myself. I tend to have them. But I am at least able to self-analyze along with it because the only way we can take fandom back and actually enjoy chatting about movies in public places is if the discourse is equipped to deal with disagreement. And we can help steer the world in that direction by minimizing the amount of pointless disagreement. Which brings me to the code. Here is one of the things I've been wanting to talk about the most, and it comes down to one simple piece of online etiquette. And that is consideration for both friends and strangers. Many of you will do this already, in which case you're already on the right track, and you might want to gently encourage others to do so too. Say, for example, on Twitter, when you see somebody declare their love for something and you disagree with their feelings. How about, don't say anything? In an ideal world, we would all be open for business on spirited debate and all of our feelings would be strong enough to take a challenge. We should all be thick-skinned. But we're living in the darkest timeline, people. A lot of us only really have these few things that bring us joy and provide us with just enough just enough fumes of energy to be able to move forward every day. If someone really loves the new Voltron and you haven't enjoyed it, ask yourself before you tweet, what exactly am I achieving with this? Who am I making happier? Who am I broadening the views of? Likewise, if someone really dislikes something that you like, Are you going to convince someone who is just flat-out irritated by, say, the new Zelda's degrading weapon system that they are in fact overlooking a lot of brilliance if your carefully worded tweet lands correctly? 
is it in fact more likely that they have had 10 people in the past week do the same thing to them already and now they dislike it even more? This is a different kettle of fish if you're chatting with your friend already. And they ask you what you think of the new Zelda. That's a conversation. Twitter is like an enormous bar with 10 million people at once, all ordering drinks and drinking them at the same time. If you overhear in passing that someone isn't a fan of the Zelda weapons, especially if they're a stranger, and you counterpoint by saying, well, I like it, doesn't bother me in the slightest. That is the equivalent of walking past a bunch of people and inserting yourself into the conversation. I see people do this every minute of the day on Twitter, many of them perfectly sensible and sensitive, decent and good-hearted people. It doesn't feel like we're butting in because we can see the feed going on, but consider that so much of the time, that's not even a conversation itself. It might just be the person trying to get something off their chest, and once it's out, they can breathe again. Maybe even get some commiseration. Yep, drives me nuts too. Or this, like tweeting this, or the Jeffrey Rush agreed gif plus man i wish more people were watching voltron it feels like if suddenly everyone did this for just one day the online world would magically become less spiky and offensive after just 24 hours and if it were sustained we might all be able to debate again now you could argue that those debating muscles need to be exercised but if you know anything about going to the gym you'll know you're not supposed to pound your arms every day day after day It's not conducive to muscle growth, you just exhaust yourself. That's why there's such a thing as leg day. And if we're fighting all the time, we're not using those muscles, we're exhausting them. I say all this because a few years ago, I was pitching Avatar The Legend of Korra on Twitter. Korra had just ended, and I had endured years of fans angry that their ship wasn't working out, or that season two's animation wasn't up to standard. Overall, I feel like it's a truly excellent show I did back then and I do now, and I was encouraging people to track it down and watch it all in context, freed of fan entitlement and debate. A friend of mine, whom I really liked, jumped on my ass out of nowhere to state for the record in this public place that she could not stand the legend of Korra. I messaged her privately and explained that I understood, but I just really didn't need to or want to know that fact. I'm always looking for points of connection with people, especially friends. What do we both like? What do we both dislike? And if she and I had been having a discussion on Korra, I would have, of course, asked her what she saw as its weaknesses, and I'd listen to what she had to say. But it wasn't a discussion. I was stressed to hell at the time, and I was just suggesting that everyone who follows me consider looking into the legend of Korra. I just finished producing for the Digital Gonzo podcast 10 episodes on the Legend of Aang and the Legend of Korra. I was exhausted and I just wanted to kind of put it to bed and just say, so, in summation, everybody go check out Korra. The situation between my friend and I went cold. I came back to her after a month and apologized for my abrupt tone, again explained that I didn't want to not talk to her. I just wanted to be able to say that something was of value without a trusted friend barging in to declare that it wasn't. She was dismissive and she did not apologize and the friendship withered and died right there. That was it. I regret how I handled that. This was a usually very good-natured, smart, kind woman who had been supportive of me for a long while, and I miss her. But she never indicated a desire to talk to me again, and I haven't changed my stance in the years since. I still think barging in and spunking disagreement all over the place is a dick move to a stranger or a friend, especially if that person is just 
encouraging their friends and followers to take a look at something positive, which is 90% of what I do. Two friends were divided. And if both of us had been less spiky and sensitive and felt less under threat every day, maybe we would still be friends. That and many other things are what's at stake here. Division of positive progressive unity is what the worst of people want. That's why this is encouraged. And I have proof that we can be better. Back when we had a forum, our most popular thread was the rent thread. Folks who were on the forum will go, ah, yes. This was a sacred place that you could just depressurize and spill your frustrations out into words with one single rule being that nobody was allowed to say, to be fair, and then blah, 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 on balance, even if there was a perfectly cromulent argument to be made. It was magic. Because there's pretty much nowhere online that you can bitch about something and know in your heart that whatever anyone is feeling, they just have to let you say it. You can agree with people, high-five them, make them feel like they're not alone in this frustration, but you can't tell them you disagree. And it was therapeutic. It was a catharsis. It was calming and helpful and weirdly positive. In all the years of use, nobody said anything truly nasty and it ended up hundreds of pages long. There was an accompanying gush thread, which wasn't as long, by the way, where you could say you loved something just out of the blue and people could either agree or keep their lip buttoned. It was the closest we've come to a simulated heaven in terms of just mundane daily discourse with full courtesy buffers enabled. This isn't about having views that are so fragile they can't stand up to somebody else disagreeing. It's about voicing something that's causing you stress without other people telling you you shouldn't be stressed. It's about laying things of positivity down at the feet of other people and having them not immediately kick those things away. My therapist is taking notes right now. Bottom line, it's about connection and keeping those links as strong as possible. Then in 2016, the whole thing fell apart when a guy started comparing Trump to Hillary Clinton, saying that they were just the same, using the douche and turd fallacy courtesy of South Park. I asked him to keep that talk off the thread. He demanded I explain my stance on Trump. I asked him to back off. He jumped onto another thread and pushed harder. I ejected him from the forum. Later on, after Trump won, he came back, sheepishly, and apologised, admitted he was just angry and didn't want to cast his precious vote in favour of a politician he didn't like, just to keep out someone that other people were saying was a monster. And because of people like him, we have been stuck in this terrible timeline for years, and thousands of families have been shattered irretrievably. People suffer needlessly every single day because of that principle. His apology meant not much of anything. And by that point, I had closed down the forum anyway. The rant thread was about letting that anger out, dissipating it, not magnifying it, isolating rather than spreading. I miss that thread. I've seen this described as let people like things. I would definitely upgrade that to let people love things, though I don't think the opposite is absolutely equal. Letting people dislike things allows them to vent, but hatred and the desire to destroy said thing is kind of worrying. Again, it's, it's touch and go. If the thing they hate is, in itself, deeply negative and hurts people like, say, anti-vaxxing, or casual rape jokes that normalise sexual assault in a confused culture, or if they, say, hate the deliberate exclusion of trans women from places where every other lady can go, then yeah, maybe let people hate. However, if they hate movies that give women and people of colour a chance in the spotlight and hurt nobody at all, 
that's maybe a legit case of I can call this person on their hateful bullshit. But if they just hate the weapon system in Zelda, rather than butting in, let them hate it. If they're your friend, maybe make a mental note for if you find yourself talking to them about video games later. I spotted you saying you hated the weapon system, and rather than just saying, it didn't bother me, which would leave any sane person shrugging in response. Yep, okay, so what? Maybe have a think about a positive spin on the weapons. The game forces us to abandon the idea of permanence. Each one you pick up becomes a chance to inflict hit points when used in the right way, but I do agree that the rigmarole of going in and out of the menu and manually discarding your worst weapon every single time you pick up a new one is a royal pain in the ass. For me, it felt like the land was offering up opportunities to be sought out. Then you can move on to what did you like about this Zelda? They will likely be more appreciative of your less bullish, more constructive approach and will be more likely to meet you halfway then with I love the music or whatever. And the same with if they like something you have a problem with on ethical grounds. If you have reason to believe that the thing is hurting someone, that they might need that perspective applied in a tactful way, you might be doing more than them a favor. If you just don't like it, there's probably not much to be gained from telling them anyway. Focus on what you both think is shit instead, like cinema sins, you both think that shit. This seems patronizing and obvious, everything I've said above, but consider that everyone is fighting every single day. We all deal with books and we deal with fuckwits, and the last thing we want is to think that our friends are insensitive twits. Giving them that outlet for frustration or adulation, then meeting them halfway later, will pretty much beat stomping them with I declare the opposite of what you just said every single time. But trust me on the tweeting. The one difference between being in your old and being in your 20s, with respect to my 22-year-old friend, right, is that when you're older, you don't have this terrible desire to be the master of it, to own it, to know everything about the subject. And you know you're never going to catch up with people who've been into this for 25 years, right? Whereas when you're in your 20s, it's a very important thing to a man, the cultural choices he makes. So he'll suddenly discover the movies of Martin Scorsese and watch all of them and tell you what the best one is, right? And then I'm really into the Smiths now, so I've listened to all their albums and this is the best one, right? Yeah. And that's really, really interesting for a man in his 20s, but when you're in your 40s and you hear a man in his 20s going no this is the best album or mm, this is the best film it sounds exactly like a six-year-old going no a stegosaurus is the best dinosaur <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't think there could be a best not the tyrannosaurus rex no its back is unprotected from attack <laughs> similarly if i know people don't like a thing that i do like i don't try to talk them into it anymore. There was a time I did, and I've stopped. I'm never going to convince you that Star Trek is as great as I think Star Trek is, or Babylon 5 or something like that, and that's fine. Well, you don't have to like... I'm with you on Farscape, it's cool. But, <laughs> but loads yeah. of people love it. And, and that's yeah, I, no, exactly, and that's great. Let them, let them love it. I'm happy that they love it. Similarly, I'm happy loving the things that I love, and you don't have to love them too. But also, if everyone realizes two fundamental facts, we all have finite time and we all have finite energy. We can't devote ourselves to everything everyone says that we should check it out. We've got to be yeah. picky and choosy. There's not enough time. Right now, if we start watching everything, if everyone stops creating stuff, we, none of us will live to, to absorb everything. None of us. And throughout our lifetimes, the amount of stuff being created will actually increase per capita per year 
It's just going to get crazy. So this whole managing ourselves, managing our energy levels, because like we need energy to watch stuff. We need energy to deal with people. We need energy just to get up out of bed in the morning. Yeah. It goes along very well with uh, the code specifically. Yeah. It goes along very well with, I believe, Will Wheaton said. Don't um, be a dick. Don't be a dick. Yeah. And it's like whatever you like. When we're talking about art, media, et cetera, like whatever you like. It's okay to like a movie. It's okay to like a movie. (laughs) It's okay to dislike a movie. But it does, it's also okay for other people to like or dislike something different. Yeah. And you could be happy that somebody enjoys something that you don't. Like in order to think critically or critique something, you have to kind of be able to dig into it and see the good and the bad. But I don't know. I'm thinking about here, like, what about if somebody is like a big fan of something that is actively harmful? Like if somebody comes to you and they're like, oh, I love the Big Bang Theory. I love everything about it. But it's like, well, actually, it's kind of drawing a line of misogyny and is like really non-inclusive and really harmful in a lot of ways, like to our culture and to the people who are like great fans of it. Uh, But they're just like, oh, but it's funny. I think that would probably fall under the if they like something you have a problem with on ethical grounds. So that's there's there's something that is I mean, my my personal metric for most things is to do with harm caused. And that's that's in terms of how I make decisions about what I'm going to do in my life and and, um, all sorts of of different things that I apply this to, that if there is active harm being caused, then that's something that is bad. I might engage with somebody to try and discuss that if I think it's going to have any value, if I think that there's the potential that I can achieve something. It's possible that if I... If somebody says to me, I really like the Big Bang Theory, I love everything about it, that if I try to challenge them on that, I'm going to be pouring a lot of my energy down a big hole. You can always just choose to disengage, too. You can always say, you know what, I care not to talk about that. Glad you like it, don't want to talk about it. If if you have the option to do that, then yeah, mm-hmm. sometimes people don't have the option to do that. It's It's something that they can't they can't ignore because it's, you know, say, for example, someone's picked up on something that that is specifically antithetical to them, they may not have that choice. Mm -hmm. But I think, again, this is one of those those areas where, like Alex said, everybody has finite energy and finite time. And it is not fair of other people to tell you how to spend your energy and time you should get to decide how you do and what you engage with and what you give to trying to resolve those clashes pick your battles oh yeah you you have to choose what hill to die on but it can i mean much like alex is describing it can sour a relationship really strongly Mm. um especially if i have a hard time seeing people the same way once i find out some kind of dark dark secret like that Um, I mean, and I'm going to equivocate to something with much higher stakes, but there's a lady who sits across from me in my office, in my new office, and she's a staff person, and she's like, yeah, you know, I think it's great that you're, you know, you transition, and you're, you're like, I'm here to support you, and I know a lot of other people are not cool about it, not good about it, like, that's fine, but like, I'm going to be here, I'm going to do what I can, but then I find out that she's a big fan of Trump, Uh... and so, like, okay, 
you're actually like you are one of the people who are least hostile to me in this environment. But I know that underneath there is like this layer of rot that is problematic and I can't actually trust you. And like if somebody were to come to me and say, oh, I think the Big Bang Theory is amazing. I think it's the best show on television. I think it's very, very funny. I really see myself in a lot of those characters. And I can say, but like what about all of the ways that it's problematic and they go, Oh no, I just don't even see any of that. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about or whatever. My only choice is to disengage like you're saying, because that's just a whole, but that sours any possible relationship I could have with this person. Mm. And it, it becomes very disheartening after a while because our culture does perpetuate certain things. It is disheartening, but at the same time, you only have a, you know, like you're like everybody keeps saying, you only have a certain amount of energy. You only have a certain limit to where you can engage with that sort of thing. And, you know, it, sometimes you're just going to let certain relationships go as much as it is difficult to do, as much as you might hate to give up that relationship or like, oh man, I really thought this person was cool and I thought they were an ally and now I found out this about you. Sometimes you just got to let those things go because it can get to a point where it's such a deeply ingrained thing that not a whole lot you're going to say and not a whole lot of things that you can introduce them to or encourage them to check out and say, you want to be a better ally, this is what you should look at. Sometimes it it just won't reach them. So I think it's very important to have that ability and that strong mindset to be able to know when you need to just let the thing go and say, I can't. I'm going to walk away as much as I can. And we can still have an interaction, especially if it's a family member or someone you work with somewhere that you do have to interact with them, but it's going to be just kind of on the surface now. It's just going to be a superficial relationship, and that's all it can be. Yeah. Oh, I agree. But I definitely think that there comes a time where that gets really hard to do it again and again and again and again. And eventually you're just like so much of life becomes so superficial that it becomes daunting in its own right that you're you're saving those that energy but it becomes very problematic it's just hard to find people i'm, I'm this is more absolutely just, yeah. and that's and but then again you know that's where the importance of you know finding a community where you're encouraged to say things like i generally don't tend to comment negatively on something except in cases where i'm like there is something that's potentially very harmful in this like I don't tend to engage with things where like, you know what, I didn't really like this thing, but this person really seemed to enjoy it, so I'm going to back off. The most recent example where I found myself on the opposite side of that was Ralph Breaks the Internet, because there are some aspects of the movie that I felt perpetuated a very dangerous thing, and I don't think the filmmakers were cognizant enough about it or knew enough information about this issue to address it and they may have put it in there without even realizing what harm it was doing but i took very many issues with one very specific part of the movie and had to just say something because i couldn't keep it in anymore generally i tend to back off it's like eh, i just didn't like this thing ralph breaks the internet was marketed to children so that was something i felt very strongly about but in a general sense like look go out there and find your positivity put positivity out there but it's also important to have a community where you know your voice is going to be heard and you know you're going to be supported i think for me a lot of what that comes down to is reminding myself 
and and again everybody is going to see this differently and everybody's going to be coming from a different perspective but i try to remind myself that it is not my job to convert anybody who is into something which is particularly problematic and if the thing that they're into that is problematic is potentially harmful to me and the people I care about then my first priority is going to be protecting those people I care about I don't know I'm, I'm like I'm, I still just find it eventually I don't know maybe I've just lost too many friends um, over these, this kind of thing because then it seems like I'm being the judgmental one and in a way I am but it is know. tough it's a fine line to try and walk because we all want our voices to be heard we all want to share our opinions that's part of the reason why we do things like this um, but yeah you it is a very fine line and I completely understand where you're coming from where yeah it's it's tough to disengage it's tough to keep certain relationships on just a very shallow surface level because you know if you dig any deeper you're going to start finding things that you really don't like particularly if it's family there's two business terms that spring to mind here sunk costs and fail faster sunk costs are everything you've invested in a business or a relationship your time effort and money failing faster is where you weigh up that it's better for you to finish now even though you have perhaps sizable sunk costs so that you don't accrue more the more in the habit of this you are the better equipped you'll be to recognize what's really worth your time and effort never quitting ever isn't necessarily healthy it can in fact be desperately unhealthy never quitting on what's worthwhile that's a truly admirable quality and speaking of truly worthy investments our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode so thank you to Abel Savard, Aaron Lecluse, Benjamin Biddle, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Kieran Datchler, Dan Hopner, Dan Mayer, Dave Hickman, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Joseph Cluck, Kevin Otero, Lorraine Chesham, Luke Hatfield, Mark Lush, Matthew A. Siebert, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Michael Hasco, and Tom Painter. And all of them, and everyone who's at the $5 level and above, can, at the end of this week, tune in to the deleted section of this show, which was a full-on ranting review of a film called Revenge of the Nerds that is available on Patreon to download, along with a massive archive of bonus material. And to give you all a taster, here is a clip from the Revenge of the Nerds show. I was just so shocked and stunned at how unbelievably goddamn egotistical these two fucking protagonists are are de- being depicted as our just heroes like, ladies and gentlemen exactly and i was just like oh god i hate you so much i want you to be hit by a car and die and i'm 10 minutes into this goddamn film so if you find yourself craving more you know where you can find it okay so before we go where can people find your stuff starting with Karu and debbie uh, yeah, you can find us at sequentially-yours.com. I do deep dives into comics. We talk about comic book media, especially movies together. I am Bastet8300 on Twitter, and Karu is uh, MoonPanther22. Yeah. We are both pretty active. If you if you want to have a chat, feel free. Yeah, I just did 10, 
tweet storm on why the why the X Men feels so home like to me. It was great. Hmm. Uh, Lauren. Uh, mainly these days, the only place anybody will find me is on this feed. Um, but I have been, I don't know, getting the podcasting itch more. So who knows <laughs> in the future? Uh, my Twitter account is at Xavier Shandi, X-A-V-I-A-S-H-A-N-D-I. I mainly just tweet pictures of my cats, rampant selfies, <laughs> and deep dives onto the trans narratives in the background of Destiny. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Maya. Everybody go see Avengers Endgame. <laughs> I'm sure I didn't need to tell anybody that, but I mean, <laughs> if you feel like supporting me, that's one of the ways you can do it, is by going to see a movie that you probably were going to go see anyway. Uh, funny enough, I actually, this is super embarrassing too, uh, so apparently when they were filming Infinity War and Endgame, it was just, they considered it one large production. So even though I was not in any way involved in the filming of Infinity War, I still somehow was nominated for a SAG award for the best stunt ensemble. (laughs) I don't know how that works. And I felt really weird, like, oh, okay, I guess this is a thing that happened, even though I wasn't in that part. But anyway, uh, so I guess I'm considered part of that one, too. Speaking of DC stuff, um, Doom Patrol is finally out, which I've, I've been in a number of episodes of Doom Patrol since it started production. Unfortunately, it's only on the DC streaming service, which kind of irks me a little bit because apparently it's getting pretty well received and it looks to be like a pretty fun show, you know, up there with Shazam looking like it, it might be bringing some of the fun back into the DC properties as well. So if you have access to the DC universe, check out Doom Patrol. It was written by Grant Morrison, kind of a dark comedy sort of thing going on with it. Bunch of misfit outcast superheroes. A lot of fun to film. Should be a lot of fun to watch. So check it out if you've got access to that. And on Twitter, you can find me at Maya Santandrea. Thank you very much, Maya. And, thank you. Uh, thank you to all of you guys for coming on this show. This was an endurance test for all of us. Um, but it was good. I felt the energy on this one. It was, okay. We're in the right place. Okay. We'll be back in one week's time with Captain Marvel. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's, School's out. out. My nerds. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is my closing point, and it's a series of different behaviours we can all work on to make our online and hopefully offline spaces better. If you're doing some or all of these already, once again, well done and encourage that in others. Be considerate. Don't stand by when somebody vulnerable is getting attacked. Don't be a bully. Measure your responses. Ask for help when you need it. Do your research. Be comfortable with not having made a final decision yet. Think about the human being on the other end of that discussion. Manage your energy. You don't have infinite batteries. Know when to back off. You can change the way she feels. And finally, look for the fun in things. There's way too much to be sad or angry about. And laughing helps ease the pain. I stand in front of you, 
Aggressives of this world want us to fight and lose and feel like shit because that means they win. They get to control the way the world goes. We beat them by always trying to be better people, by closing ranks, rising above hate, and protecting those who need it. And if we can manage that, I think our fandoms can be brought back to the kind of places. Our children will want to be in.